Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Beyond Markets podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the role of digital assets in the financial landscape and examining what the recent turmoil in financial markets means for the asset class. We'll also dive deep into the world of ramps, stablecoins, and much more. Joining me today are two experts on digital assets and the future of finance. Manuel Viegas is our next generation research analyst specializing in digital assets. And Alexander Ruchti, joining us virtually, is part of our International Wealth Management Solutions Strategy and Innovation team. So let's get started. Manuel, some people are saying that crypto has been a sizable contributing factor to the recent turmoil in the banking sector. Do you think there's any truth to that? So hi, Bernadette. You know, that's a great question. And that's what everyone's been asking all over the place. And the short answer is no. To be fair, the rise of digital assets and their disruptive potential towards traditional financial systems have certainly contributed to discussions and debates around financial markets and authorities. Nonetheless, the asset class had nothing to do with the causation of the current turmoil. Current banking troubles are mostly the result of an adverse macroeconomic environment that has put liquidity constraints amongst multiple sectors of the economy. What we have recently observed is that some institutions did not take the necessary precautions. Simply put, interest rates went up, which caused the values of the bond portfolios of some banks to decrease drastically which caused then deposit holders to be worried about the safety of their wealth and which caused then deposit holders starting the bank runs. On another note, the Silicon Valley Bank had a very tight relationship with a cash-starved tech industry, adding even more pressure to the overall picture of the bank's run. Crypto had nothing to do with that succession of events whatsoever. So, um, Alexander, what's your take on this? Could the crypto market have been responsible at all for the worries in the traditional financial industry? Thank you very much for having me, Bernadette. It's great to speak to you again. So whether the crypto market would have been able to cause the current financial crisis that we're seeing, very, very unlikely. And uh, I I see two main factors for that. Uh, The first is just a, a massive size difference. So the, the global crypto market today, it, it hovers somewhere north of about $1 trillion in wealth. And if you compare that to global bank deposits or the, the global stock market, those two are more in the region of about $100 trillion. So there's a one to 100 size difference. So even if the, the crypto market today would, would go to zero, wouldn't necessitate like a, a, a massive financial crisis by itself. And besides the the size factor, there's also just the economic linkage reason for it. So currently, very little activity in the crypto space has an actual sizable impact on economic development. So crypto isn't 
widely used as collateral in financial markets. It it doesn't underpin things like like trade finance or supply chain finance. It is largely a financial sideshow for the global economy for now. That might change in the future if more use cases develop, if adaption were to to speed up. But for now, it's just not that ingrained in the economy to really cause substantial damage. Okay, so uh, looking at the recent financial sector fallout, Two banking institutions were key providers for crypto exchanges in the US dollar market, providing so-called ramping solutions between the traditional financial world and the crypto ecosystem. Manuel, can you explain the impact of this? And in fact, also, what on earth is a crypto ramp? (laughs) I I understand perfectly where you're coming from. And uh, it would be my pleasure to explain the impact of this. So first off, uh, ramping solution, let's start with on-ramps. On-ramps provide individuals with access to crypto markets by exchanging their government-backed or fiat currencies, as we know them, like US dollars or euros, for digital assets, essentially enabling individuals to get into the crypto space. On the other hand, off-ramps are quite the opposite. They allow individuals to exit the crypto market by converting their digital assets back into fiat currencies. Examples of on-ramps include centralized crypto exchanges like Coinbase, Binance, Kraken, or peer-to-peer platforms like the former and now defunct local bitcoins, and the recently collapsed banks, Silvergate and Signature. There are also some KYC software solutions that are built on top of decentralized wallets. So to add up the impact of the whole situation, I can tell you that Silicon Valley Bank's demise had also serious implications for crypto in the short term. As Circle, the issuer of the stablecoin US dollar coin, or USDC as we know it, had a tranche of its reserves within Silicon Valley Bank. Essentially, Circle used the bank as a ramping solution. US dollar coin temporarily lost its peg to the US dollar, forcing millions of dollars in liquidations. These platforms facilitate the buying and selling of digital assets using various payment methods, including bank transfers, credit cards, and even cash. Manuel, thank you for demystifying the jargon for me. Uh, Moving back to you, Alexander, would it be a significant problem if crypto exchanges were to lose access to the traditional banking system? Yes, it would definitely be a significant problem for them. Losing access to the traditional financial system poses a number of uh, quite drastic challenges for those institutions. The first and the biggest point, Manuel already alluded a bit to it, the funding and withdrawal situation. The current life, financial life, that still happens in US dollars, in euros, in Swiss francs, in Swedish krona, what have you, and hardly anyone has crypto as their main medium of exchange in their daily life. And so if those exchanges were were cut off from the banking system, that would severely limit the on-ramp, off-ramp of of cryptos. The exchanges would also have some issues when it comes to regulatory compliance. Because a lot of exchanges, they rely at least partially on banks to help them meet 
various anti-money laundering and you know your customer requirements, so AML, KYC, how we uh, appreciate it in the industry. And losing access to those banking services will make it quite a bit harder for exchanges to, to comply with regulation. And uh, the, the last point is just for the operations of the exchanges themselves. So while they're, they're dealing with cryptos, the majority of their cost structure that's still in traditional fiat currency. So to manage just their cash flows, their payrolls, to, to keep the lights on in their business, that's why they need to rely on traditional banking partners to achieve that. Okay, so Manuel, back to you. Um, as we've said, crypto exchanges have lost a couple of their key partners in the traditional banking system. How will this impact these exchanges, especially in light of the fact that they've already very much been targeted by U.S. regulators? So first off, I tell you, I think this can be a business opportunity for some new providers to come across. You know, everything in crypto is moving so fast. Might as well find a new business opportunity in the space. With that, I think that bridges between traditional finance and crypto are at the moment largely uncrowded. And I said before, you know, direct impacts will come in the form of constraints over on and off ramping solutions and a higher likelihood of more conservative funding in the short term, which is a factor that has also been heavily influenced by the current macroeconomic headwinds, by the constant hikes we've had from the Federal Reserve and the tight macroeconomic conditions that we have been experiencing since the beginning of last year. On another note, I really like to focus on, on data, on on-chain metrics. On-chain metrics are essentially data from the blockchain. And one very interesting one to evaluate is the exchange's net flow of an asset's supply. So essentially, we can see how many Bitcoins and Ether is flowing into an exchange. And this would represent that investors are on a rather risk-off manner and would like to be closer to off-ramping. So if investors have their assets in self-custody wallets, they would normally revert to exchanges, which would then revert to off-ramping solutions to provide the cash or the fiat currencies back to the investors. At the current moment, however, this metric is displaying no significant changes. So we can say that the risk appetite of the investors has not changed despite current events. And as of a couple of months ago, regulators have been targeting crypto exchanges and crypto-friendly banks in the US. I say crypto-friendly, but crypto-friendly is not crypto-native. Crypto-friendly is essentially these banks that were out there just working with crypto, also because they had a business case with it, right? So what I fear right now is that there is a widespread lack of a leveled playing field. I think it is quite concerning. A recent White House report, to my surprise, it had a staggering amount of pages within the report, specifically focusing on crypto or digital assets. The problem is there is no uniform decision-making process as the Commodities Future Trading Commission, or the CFTC as we know it, had labeled in 2015 and 2018 all cryptos as commodities. And now the Securities Exchange Commission, or the SEC, led by Gary Gensler, is stepping in. And now they are labeling most cryptos as securities. And according to him, all of them pass the Howey test and can be classified as investment contracts. 
The problem with it is that one authority says something and the other authority says something completely different, you know. And what we've experienced in this year, we've experienced a huge rally from cryptos. But on the sidelines, we've also experienced how the SEC is stepping in and taking down most of the staking solutions out there that centralized exchanges had. And they are following up with also taking down some of the big names in stablecoin issuance because we saw that the SEC took down the Binance US dollar as well, not so long ago. So I fear that exchanges have to be wary of these risks, of the regulatory risks and the appropriate labeling of digital assets. And more importantly, so do investors. I'd like to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, um, Manuel, interest rates. The current banking crisis is often talked about in a context of rising interest rates in fiat currency markets. How is the crypto market impacted by this, Alexander? Fiat interest rates, they do matter a lot for the crypto industry because at the end of the day, and a bit oversimplified, the entire digital asset space is a bit like a sandbox-ish, smaller parallel world to the traditional markets. So the first segment is more of an asset class view. And what you tend to observe is when, when interest rates are low, investors tend to hunt for asset classes with higher returns. So they start to shift from investment grade bonds towards a bit high yield bonds. They look more into asset classes with higher lockup periods. They tend to favor things like riskier stocks. So we saw that with the push towards the tech stocks and also towards crypto because crypto is seen as one of the risk on assets in the world that has the potential to moonshot, to rise up sharply or to strongly decrease in value as well. And so with the, the current environment, if, if interest rates rise, investors might just shift their focus back to more traditional investments, potentially reducing the demand for digital assets and affecting the price. The second dimension to it is if you go into the market itself. So when we look at what's happening in crypto itself, you then have some decentralized finance platform that offer borrowing and lending solution. And their interest rates are often influenced by the broader interest rates environment itself. So so-called DeFi platform, if you're only going to get 3% yield on that, that doesn't sound majorly attractive given all the hacks that have occurred in the space during the recent months, when at the same time there is some AAA rated government debt that offers a yield of just as high. And lastly, changes in interest rates can affect the value of stable coins, particularly those that are pegged to fiat currencies. If a central bank changes its interest rate policy, it could impact the exchange rate between the stable coin and the underlying fiat currency potentially causing fluctuation in the value of such a stable coin. So that's the, the third potential dimension where we see a linkage between the traditional finance interest rate environment and what's happening in the digital asset space. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the stable coins that Alex just mentioned. 
uh, Manuel. Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about what stablecoins are and how the different types of stablecoins actually function. Absolutely. You know, stablecoins, uh, as their name suggests, uh, are essentially a crypto assets that were created with the idea of maintaining a less volatile payment mechanism than what Bitcoin was offering or Ethereum was offering back in the day. Stablecoins are also the backbone of decentralized finance and of off-ramping solutions because many stablecoins actually can be redeemed back to fiat currencies on a one-to-one level with uh, the appropriate counterparties. You know, and, and before you said functioning, and uh, unfortunately, stablecoins haven't been functioning as expected in recent days. And I tell you, stablecoins are a type of token that have to maintain a stable value. Usually, they are pegged to a reserve of assets, such as a fiat currency or other digital assets or even commodities. Sometimes we have gold as well. And the primary goal is to minimize the price volatility, as we mentioned before, and make them more suitable for everyday transactions and often as a store of value, thereby serving as a better payment mechanism. And here I want to emphasize that in developing countries or in countries with a very high inflation, stablecoins tend to have a better usability in this aspect. This use case is used way more often in developing countries than in developed ones, because normally people don't have access to a hard currency that is somehow a bit more protected from hyperinflation or devaluation from the country risk or whatever. So briefly, stablecoins are just derivatives and the most common underlying for these is the US dollar. And there are several types of stablecoins. Each one has a different method to maintain the peg. So first off, we have the category of asset-backed stablecoins. And the most common type that actually represents over 90% of the total market capitalization of stablecoins are fiat collateralized stablecoins. So they are backed by a reserve of fiat currency, such as the US dollar, with a one-to-one ratio. Normally, these reserves are held in cash. And because these companies that are creating these kind of stablecoins have to have a business case, they also allocate some of these positions to short-term treasuries. So they actually earn a yield on their reserves. This makes not all of the reserves perfectly liquid. And the best examples for this kind of subgroup of stablecoins would be US dollar tether or USDT and US dollar coin or USDC, the one we were talking about just before. Then we have another type of asset-backed stablecoin, but now this one is crypto collateralized. And these are now backed by a reserve of digital assets often over-collateralized to account for the price volatility of the reserve assets. And this can be Ethereum in the reserve, and it can also be another stablecoin. So an example of this is DAI, which is collateralized by Ethereum and other stablecoins, which can be also US dollar coin, which we were mentioning before. And all of these reserve assets are held in smart contracts. So you can actually monitor the health of these reserve assets on a spot fashion. And anyone can access the blockchain and evaluate if this is true or not. Then we have another type of asset-backed stablecoins, which is commodity-backed. And back in 2018, 
many proponents came up with stablecoins that were collateralized with gold. And here we have Tether Gold. As of right now, it doesn't represent a relevant proportion of the whole stablecoin market cap, but it is also existing. And lastly, we have algorithmic stablecoins. And you might have heard the term last year because in May, the first big blow the crypto industry took was actually led by the US dollar Terra. And these stablecoins use algorithms to maintain their peg, adjusting the supply of the stablecoin in response to market demand without relying on collateral. So if done properly, they should actually represent a viable alternative. Actually also have examples like Frax. And as of right now, they only represent a couple billion in market cap. And I, I really want to emphasize the if done properly part, because what US dollar Terra was doing was offering yields on these stablecoins that were unsustainable. And I want to remind investors again, every time you go into a crypto project, please allocate some time for a due diligence because there are many layers of risks. And stablecoins are a riskier asset than their underlying because they are derivatives. So you not only contract the risk from the US dollar or whatever asset is backing the stablecoin, but you're also contracting the risk of the blockchain. Thank you very much for that summary, Manuel. Alexander, can you now tell us what some of the problems are that can cause stablecoins to lose their peg? And what were the main culprits when some of the major stablecoins depegged recently? So there are a number of factors that have caused the collapses or at least depeggings in the space. So the less top of mind factors are marketing manipulation, regulatory concern and liquidity issues. But uh, the far bigger two were technological issues, so bugs, vulnerabilities, or other technical issues in the underlying smart contract or, or algorithm of a stablecoin that can lead to a loss pretty quickly. So um, Manuel already alluded to it. Uh, the most famous one was the Terra Luna collapse last year, which brought a nearly $40 billion sized uh, ecosystem to its knees because it was just in a completely unsustainable setup. And the, the next one is having insufficient collateral. So if the, the value of the collateral backing a stablecoin drops significantly, it can lead to a loss of confidence in the stablecoin itself, which then causes the value to deviate from the peg. And this is the problem that we saw in the last couple of weeks when USDC and DAI, those two stablecoins, when they depegged. And the issue there was that the company issuing the USDC stablecoin had their collateral partially stored at Silicon Valley Bank. And when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, investors started to worry whether more than $3 billion held at Silicon Valley Bank were in jeopardy. And DAI depacked because a lot of the collateral behind DAI was USDC. So for DAI, it was that the collateral was USDC. And for USDC, the collateral was at Silicon Valley Bank. So to sum it all up, what Manuel mentioned it is very important that you have to look at what is the primary function of a crypto or, or a stablecoin in general, and then where are the dependencies? Where is the collateral situated? What sort of code audits 
have been done because it is uh, an area of finance, the entire digital asset space where investors can and will get burned if they don't put in the necessary due diligence legwork. Overall then, Manuel, what is your outlook for the asset class from a research perspective? Is the long-term trajectory still favorable for crypto? Uh, that's a money question, you know. And I, I tell you, despite the macroeconomic headwinds the asset class has endured since the beginning of last year, and also the end of 2021, paired with an ever-tightening regulatory environment, sometimes arbitrary playing field in terms of regulation, sometimes favoring some companies instead of the others, and so bottom-up crypto-specific events, particularly the ones that we had last year, the Terra Luna collapse, Three Arrows Capital, Voyager Digital, and then the biggest fraud of all, the FTX fiasco. All of these have raised several questions, you know. And despite all of these problems that I just mentioned, the largest blockchains, Bitcoin and Ethereum, have been characterized by their sound performance. The smart contracts are working as intended, and they have been working as intended at every single point in time, despite everything that has happened with the broader market. If you wanted to do liquidity pooling, you could do liquidity pooling in Ethereum. If you wanted to buy an NFT, you would have been able to as well, you know. And the disruptive potential of the technology still holds. It is intact. It can revolutionize finance as we know it with tokenization. It can revolutionize real estate as well. It can collateralize, you can securitize for the love of Gary Gensler. And you can also give access to retail investors, to market making amongst thousands of other use cases. I see, however, the short term a bit more complicated. Macroeconomic conditions, I fear, will remain in the driving seat for the asset class, despite the solid on-chain data I just mentioned, and the sound fundamentals. Nonetheless, should tightening decrease, we see the asset class in pole position to regain last year's lost grounds. So on the medium to long term, we have a favorable outlook of all of the solutions that the blockchains can bring to us and its disruptive potential. So Manuel and Alexander, thank you so much for sharing your expertise today. With that, we conclude this edition of the Beyond Markets podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation and that you'll join us again soon. Bye for now. Get ready for the day ahead. Moving Markets is a daily market news briefing from Julius Baer's leading experts. You'll hear all about the latest ups and downs across asset classes, the underlying drivers, and our thoughts on where markets are heading. Search for Moving Markets on your favourite podcast player. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. 
The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.